You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 11th annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Maynooth University on the 18th and 19th of August, 2023. The conference was generously supported by the MacMorris Project, the Irish Research Council, the Department of English at Maynooth University, the Arts and Humanities Institute at Maynooth University, and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by RailSmart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. You can access an archive of more than 250 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of the first conference plenary, which was given by Gillian Wright from the University of Birmingham. Gillian's paper was entitled read the poet. Thank you to Evan and indeed originally to Owen um, for inviting me to take part in this, this conference, which I, I should have done as early as 2020, but I think you know that something's happened since then. Um, it might also be worth um, mentioning um, what I imagine is the reason why I was approached to give this paper in the first place, which was that in the um, second of the two books that um, that, that Pat mentioned, um, I did include a, a chapter on... Um, Poetry, English language poetry, I should, should stress, English language poetry connected with Ireland during the period 1660 to 1700, which was um, an absolute labour of love to me because it, um, that book project um, turned out to be an opportunity for me to work on lots of things that I'd wanted to work on for a long time, and this just um, came out gradually. But I should also say, and I have not admitted this to Owen or Evan or Pat, um, that while I was working on that book, um, I saw a call for papers for this conference, and I was too scared to come forward to it because I thought, I just don't know enough. I'll be exposing my ignorance to too many people. Now, of course, I'm exposing my ignorance to an even larger audience because I've got you all here. Um, but what I am really, really hoping is that I will get some well-informed feedback from a knowledgeable audience. Um, part and parcel of my um, being interrupted for the last three years more or less, um, in my work on this project, is that even though um, I proposed the title Orrery the Poet to Owen as early as, I think, um, January 2020, um, I feel that I'm not very much further forward with it. Um, I'm aware of quite a lot of gaps in my knowledge, particularly where the archives are concerned. Um, So please take that all into um, account as as I go forward. Um, the other thing that Pat didn't mention when she was introducing me, and I mentioned this to you earlier, Pat, is that I'm the, I turn out to be the second person from my old school um, to give a plenary at Tudor and Stuart Island, which I regard as a great accolade, following Dina Rankin in 2018. Um, where am I with my, with my apologies for myself? Um, oh yeah, the other apology for myself is that after every single paper I've heard so far, I've been aware of things that I ought to change about my own. So I'm quite relieved that I'm speaking at the end of the first day. If it had been the end of tomorrow, I would have had to rewrite the paper completely. Um, as it is, you've just got to put up with my mistakes. Um, Final, final point, um, I am going to be referring to my subject as orrery throughout the, the talk, um, even though it is anachronistic for his earlier career. It's just easier that way. Um, there will be a point where um, his change of titles becomes relevant and that will be flagged when I get there. So, the paper. When I try to make sense of orrery's poetry, my first thought is always 
but how did he find the time? Um, now, I'm aware that many people in this audience will be more familiar with the shape of his career than I am, but I hope you'll bear with me while I just remind us of some of the key um, landmarks in his writing life. So his most substantial literary work um, was his 800-page prose romance, Parthenissa, which is published in instalments between 1651 and 1676 and was still unfinished in its final edition. He also wrote several plays, um, many of which, um, including the general Henry V, the Black Prince and Trifon, were staged in the Commercial Theatre in London. He wrote treatises, um, two fairly short works, The Irish Colours Displayed and An Answer to a Person of Quality, both published in 1662, uh, as well as the 200-page Treatise on the Art of War, published in 1677. Um, he was a copious letter writer. Um, three volumes of his letters to the Duke of Ormond were published in the 18th century, and his numerous other correspondence included both leading political figures and members of his extended family. And, of course, all of this writing activity was in addition to his political and military career, which included fighting in the wars of the 1640s and 50s, hanging out with Cromwell, running Scotland, serving in Parliament in London, and holding such high offices as Lord Justice of Ireland and Lord President of Munster. He packed a lot into his 58 years. It makes me feel tired to think about it. Many aspects of Orrery's career are hard to assess, and his poetry is no exception. Compared with his prose and even his drama, Orrery's poetry is fragmentary and elusive. Um, this slide summarising his poetic career um, isn't intended to be exhaustive, um, but it does point towards some of his key poetic activities, as well as some of the problems this aspect of his career presents for a literary historian. So we, or at least I, um, know little for sure about his poetry prior to the 1650s. Um, it's entirely possible that during this period he was writing verse for manuscript circulation either among his own family or within his wider social networks. The latter included Charles I's court, where he spent time in the late 1630s and early 1640s, and where we know he was acquainted with major court poets such as Suckling and Davenant. Manuscript transmission, as we know, was both common and prestigious during this period, but poetry that circulated in this way was vulnerable to being lost, um, sometimes without trace. So, as um, some colleagues will be aware, we have a few tantalising references which indicate that poems by Orrery did enjoy some circulation in this period, but the poems themselves, as far as I know, um, seem to have been lost, although... If other people know more, I'm looking forward to being corrected there. We're on firmer ground when we reach the 1650s and 60s, when Orrery is known to have written complimentary verses on other writers, including Abraham Cowley, Catherine Phillips and Edward Howard. And not coincidentally, it's during this period that we start to see Orrery's poetry starting to move from manuscript into print. His complimentary poem to Cowley... Edit urging him to finish his epic poem, The Davideus, seems likely to have been written quite soon after books one to four of The Davideus were published in 1656. Um, but Orrery's poem only made it into print with Cowley's reply in 1663. However, when Cowley died in 1667, um, Orrery was quickly into print with an admiring elegy 
published by Henry Herringman, by then well established as the London publisher for Parthenissa. Ori's complimentary poem to Catherine Phillips, urging her to finish her translation of Corneille's Pompeii, was published in 1663 in the same Dublin miscellany as his Davideus poem, while his commendatory poem to Edward Howard, urging him to finish his would-be heroic poem The British Princes, was published amongst the preliminaries to The British Princes in 1669. Encouraging other poets to finish their poems was evidently a bit of a thing for Orrery, um, a point I'll come back to later in the paper, um, and was clearly linked with his self-appointed role as a literary patron and cultural gatekeeper in both Dublin and London, a role in which he seems to have been most actively invested in the late 1650s and 60s. After the 1660s, um, Orrery seems to have written less of this kind of meta-literary poetry, though it's, of course, possible that he wrote manuscript poems to other writers that have since been lost. But by this stage in his career, if not before, he clearly had a finely calibrated sense of the cultural function and value of both manuscript and print. And manuscript verse still had its uses in certain circumstances. His major surviving poem from the 1670s, the polemical poem A Vision, is extant um, only in manuscript and may have been presented in this form to Charles II. By contrast, his final verse collection, Poems uh, Upon Most of the Festivals of the Church, um, published posthumously in 1681, seems to have been definitely intended for print by the author. Its preface, a tad optimistically, anticipates the kind of wide readership that only print could have provided. So this is the overall shape of Ori's poetic career, insofar as I can reconstruct it. Over the course of 40 or so years, his poetry moves gradually and unevenly from manuscript into print. His poems are typically occasional and social in origin, their preoccupations include literary patronage, particularly in relation to landmark literary projects, as well as politics and religion. And his poems straddle both sides of the Irish Sea, with some published in London and others in Dublin, collectively demonstrating Ori's excellent cultural and political connections in both locations. So in today's paper, I'm going to spend most of my time looking in some detail at just one of Orrery's poems. Um, this is a poet entitled To the Lord Herbert, um, and it's a poem which to date has received um, very little scholarly attention, but which I think merits careful consideration for a number of reasons. It tells us quite a lot about Orrery's poetic subjects and methods in the earlier part of his career, and may be of particular interest on account of its date. Um, I'm going to suggest a speculative dating. The poem also survives in a rather unusual textual witness, which I'll describe and discuss, and which is particularly interesting in relation to Orrery's social and political networks. So most of the paper um, will focus on this one little-known poem. Um, then in the last section of the paper, I'm going to be broadening my scope to draw comparisons with Orrery's other attested poems and to think further about what part poetry played in his writing life. 
So questions I'll be, be asking will include, quite simply, what kind of a poet was he? Um, is it possible to tell why he wrote poetry and what he hoped to achieve by doing so? Were his objectives as a poet consistent over time? Or were they, like so many aspects of his career, um, subject to change? Now, I've said here I'm going to talk about identity. I heard what Philip was saying this morning about identity, and actually, I'm going to be gesturing towards identity rather than saying anything very defensive about it, so I think it's okay for me still to say that. Um, Finally, um, I'm going to ask um, what part, if any, Ireland played in his poetry. But here is the poem I'm going to be focusing on for much of today's paper. Um, It's a 66-line poem, um, and as you may be able to tell, the copy we're looking at is inscribed on the recto and verso of one of the preliminary blank leaves in a book now held in the Osborne Collection in Yale. Um, The poem's full title is To the Lord Herbert and Upon His History of Henry VIII. So, the Lord Herbert in question is um, Edward, Lord Herbert of Cherbury. He was the elder brother of the poet George Herbert, and more importantly for our purposes, he was the author of The Life and Reign of King Henry VIII, first published posthumously in 1649. And here's the title page, um, with a rather fetching portrait of Henry VIII on one side. So the, the Yale volume in which Orrery's poem survives is in fact a copy of The Life and Reign. Um, I'm not going to go through every line of this 66-line poem, but I am going to pick out a few of its principal topics of interest, um, the first of which I think will be very familiar to scholars of the Boyle family. Um, And this is the tomb, um, or rather, the absence of the tomb. So here is the opening of the poem. Um, The the it's addressed to is Lord Herbert, and the monarch referred to as Henry VIII. That monarch, that marble, which thy monarch was denied, by thy nobler pens so well supplied, that we confess, and so much those to come, no king could ever boast so fair a tomb. For this shall last when pyramids of pride are turned into such ashes as they hide. Which makes us think the world will wonder more at this tomb than that he had none before. Well... This isn't wonderful poetry, Um, but one thing I do ask you to note is the quite careful and accurate use of rhyme. Um, I'm going to come back to the issue of Orrery's rhymes later in the paper. Uh, But for the present, what I'm more interested in is Orrery's emphasis in both the first and the last lines I've quoted here on the fact that Henry VIII had no tomb. In fact, in the manuscript copy... Um, This all-important point is further emphasised by a marginal note. Henry VIII never had a tomb. (laughs) So, Orrery's conceit in these opening lines that Herbert's book is a better and more lasting memorial to Henry VIII than a physical monument could have been is, of course, an early modern commonplace, um, familiar in English poetry from poets such as Shakespeare, Spencer and uh, a certain Samuel Daniel. Um, But it's a commonplace that carries a certain irony when deployed by a boil, um, given the family's well-known obsession with tomb building in both Dublin and Yule, um, as documented by by Clodagh Tate and Maria Walsh, amongst others. 
The claim that Henry VIII never had a tomb is in any case only partially true and doesn't in fact reflect what Herbert says on the subject in The Life and Reign, which I now give you in full. So Herbert says of Henry, he died religiously and penitently and was carried to Windsor where he had begun a fair monument and funded a college for 13 poor knights and two priests to pray for his soul. An unfinished tomb is not quite the same as no tomb at all. And the other reference to Henry's tomb in the life and reign is also not quite what it seems. This image um, shows James Howell's commendatory poem to the life and reign, um, which ends with these lines. He, that is Herbert, cuts him out in brass, in everlasting brass, so that I may avow old Harry never had a monument till now. So Herbert's figuring of Herbert's life and reign as a monument to Henry VIII, implicitly better and more permanent than one of physical brass, is obviously analogous to and may have helped to inspire the opening of Orrery's poem. But does Howell actually say that Henry VIII didn't have a physical tomb? It may look as if he does. Old Harry never had a monument till now. But it's also possible that this line is a kind of rhetorical flourish, emphasising the superiority of textual memorialisation over its mere material equivalent. This monument, Herbert's book, is Henry's proper monument. What makes this latter reading more plausible, in my view, is Howell's reference to Herbert's history as being cut out in everlasting brass. This, to my mind, slightly odd metaphor for writing gestures, I think, towards something that Howell, a strong royalist, would undoubtedly have seen as a contemporary outrage. As Nigel Llewellyn has shown, the actually quite substantial surviving fabric of Henry VIII's tomb at Windsor, which included a brass statue, lasted well into the 17th century. It was finally broken up by order of Parliament as late as 1645, and the materially valuable parts, including the brass, were then sold off, um, amongst other things, to pay, pay army arrears. So... I don't know whether Orrery knew about this. Um, I would love to know. The possibilities and ironies, if he did, are absolutely intriguing. Um, But to get back to what's more certain, what is clear is that Orrery's compliment to Herbert, elevating his textual memorialisation of Henry VIII above any physical monument, would have been far from a mere commonplace in his hands, given the time, creativity and money that the Boyles had put into their own familial memorialisation, and indeed, given their resistance to having that memorialisation challenged by others. But back to the poem. One question I asked myself when I first encountered Orrery's poem was whether um, Orrery actually read The Life and Reign in full... (laughs) It's 575 densely packed pages long, and I don't think he did. Um, Or rather, he wouldn't have needed to, since just about all the topics he mentions in the poem um, are covered in the summary sections at the beginning and end. (laughs) Either in the analytical character of Henry VIII that Herbert provides at the start of the book, Um, or in the seven pages of reflections on Henry's life and character included um, at the end of the volume, and I've given just the first two of them here. 
But in fact, I'd go so far as to say that Ori could probably have written the poem without needing to read the book at all, um, since nearly everything else he comments on is the famous stuff, um, essentially Henry's six marriages and the break with Rome. Furthermore, Ori's interpretation of the key events of Henry's reign is often diametrically opposed to Herbert's. Uh, This is the case, for instance, with his treatment of Henry's marital history, a topic which occupies nearly one-third of Orrery's poem. Here are just the first 12 of the 20 lines he devotes to this topic. I'm not going to read them all out, but you may be able to see from just the first couplet here that Orrery's main aim in this section is to refute the notion that Henry's many marriages were due to lust. Instead... Orri argues, they were actually due to Henry's chastity. (laughs) Both because Henry could have had as many women as he wanted without needing to marry them, and also, um, there's a connection actually with Naomi's paper here, Orri argues that Henry saw adultery, not the taking of life, as the greatest of sins. Um, So, um, as he says here in the last two lines I've quoted... Such high respect he thought due to the wife that t'was more sin to wrong her bed than life. Um, I actually find this quite a tricky section of the poem and I would welcome your thoughts on how to read it. Um, There is a certain logic to it, but I do wonder whether it can actually have been intended seriously. Could it instead have been a rather clumsy attempt at humour? Humour and tone are, of course, notoriously difficult to judge, especially over such a long historical period, and uh, given Orrery's somewhat uneven poetic skills. Um, But in any case, as I've stressed, this rationalisation of Henry's marriages is strikingly different from what Orrery would have found in Herbert's life and reign. Um, In his closing reflections on Henry, Herbert considers the notion that Henry was lustful, Um, and seems to find him guilty as charged. But he suggests in mitigation that Henry's lust was only a private vice, not a public one, that it didn't apparently lead him to hasten the deaths of any of his queens. That apparently is a quote, and I kind of like it, um, or else not. Um, He also argues that the primary motivation for Henry's many marriages was an inordinate desire to have posterity, especially masculine. Orrery also differs from Herbert in his treatment of another controversial aspect of Henry's reign, the dissolution of the monasteries. For Orrery, the dissolution was very much a step in the right direction, as it enabled Henry to replace the unproductive and inward-looking abbeys with socially useful educational foundations. So he says, His pulling down of abbeys seems to me rather a justice than impiety, For of that dull and speculative brood, the best unto himself was only good. Whereas, out of their ruins he did raise, structures deserve our gratitude and praise. Those famous schools which learning does disperse, and like the sun, lighten the universe. Herbert, however, takes a very different view. For him... While some of the monasteries were supernumerary and debauched, others were good and opportune. And though he acknowledges that Henry invested some of the proceeds of the dissolution in new church and educational foundations, he sees this as neither satisfactory for nor equivalent to 
the desolations and ruins he procured. Orrery is rather closer to the life and reign when he hails Henry as defender of the faith, a title highlighted in Herbert's introductory analytical character of Henry, though not mentioned in his closing reflections. However, Orrery adds a reference to the later inheritance of this title, which isn't in Herbert. Um, This section of the poem reads in full. He was exalted to a nobler height by that proud style defender of the faith, which, though it were purely a gift to him, yet turned a prophecy as to his line. Quite what or who Orrery is referring to in speaking of Henry's line is, is left to the reader to figure out. He doesn't offer any explanation, but moves directly into the concluding four lines of the poem, which are a final compliment to Herbert. But all this adds no much to his glory, as thou hast in thus telling of his story, he had been sure the happiest of men had he been blessed in all things as thy pen. Um, But this is not quite the end. I now come to one of the most intriguing aspects of this manuscript, which is the subscription. The poem is signed off as follows. Composed by Roger Lord Brockhill, approved of by Edward Rainbow, Doctor of Divinity and Head of Magdalen College in Cambridge. Now, I've shown this subscription to a number of colleagues, and they've all said that they've never seen anything quite like this reference to Orrery's poem being approved of by Edward Rainbow. Um, And this is another point on which I would be interested in getting feedback. Has anybody else seen a reference to to this kind of thing? Um, So, what can this approval mean, and who was Rainbow anyway? Well... Edward Rainbow was born in 1606 and died in 1684, and he was a churchman and academic. Um, He served as Master of Magdalen College, Cambridge, between 1642 and 1650, and then again from 1660 to 1664. In later life, he held several senior church appointments, culminating in two decades as Bishop of Carlisle. Crucially for our purposes, um, in his early career, he enjoyed the patronage of several noblemen closely connected with Orrery, the Earls of Suffolk, Northumberland and Warwick, who were all variously his brother, brothers-in-law. Um, when, he was, when Rainbow was ejected from his mastership in 1650, it was the Earl of Suffolk um, who provided for him by presenting him to a living in Essex. And in 1659, Orrery himself was involved in helping Rainbow to his next church appointment. So this this comes from a biography of Rainbow published in the 1680s. In April 1659, the rectory of Beanfield in Northamptonshire of the gift of the Earl of Warwick fell vacant and was proffered him by the same noble Earl, which he utterly refused because the triers with whom he was resolved to have nothing to do were then in power. Tiller was sent him a presentation from the Earl of Warwick with an assurance that he might be possessed of Beanfield without going to the triers, which last favour had been procured him by the Earl of Orrery, then only Lord Brockhill. I find this anecdote really, really interesting for several reasons, not least what it implies about Orrery's networks in England, um, as well as his possible influence over church appointments. Um, But my question really is, does it help in explaining why Rainbow's approval of Orrery's poem might have been sought? 
Um, and does it help in answering another key question about this poem, namely when it was written? So I'll take those two questions in reverse order. Um, on this slide, um, I've set out some of the key dates relevant to the composition and approval of To the Lord Herbert. The very earliest Orrery's poem can have been written is 1649, the year um, Herbert's Life and Reign was first published. Even though the poem's relationship with Herbert's volume is, as I've been suggesting, somewhat disingenuous, Herbert's volume is um, clearly the pretext, if nothing else, for the poem. If we take the references in the subscription at face value, that is, if we assume that the poem was written while Orrery was still Lord Brockle, then the very latest it can have been written is early September 1660, as Brockle was created Earl of Orrery on the 5th of that month. So that gives us a composition date sometime between 1649 and September 1660. Similarly, if we assume that Rainbow's approval of Orrery's poem took place when he was actually Master of Maudlin, then there are two periods when this could have happened. Either between 1649 and 1650, prior to Rainbow's ejection from Maudlin, or between 1660 and 1664, during his second tenure in that role. Given the documented connection between Rainbow and Orrery in 1659, the second of these two options seems the more likely. So my speculative chronology would place the composition of the poem in around 1659 or 1660, with Rainbow's, poem, Rainbow's approval taking place in September 1660 or later. And I think this dating um, would also make sense of what I've already suggested is one of the most curious allusions in the poem, um, namely the reference to Henry's title um, as Defender of the Faith, um, the reference to that title as being a prophecy as to his line. Um, I have always thought this is one of the oddest sections of this poem, not least because it's the only part that doesn't rhyme properly. Um, how does not rhyme with faith or him with line? Um, either Orrery is deliberately not rhyming at all, or he's rhyming really badly, and neither is like him. Um, he is, as I pointed out earlier, normally quite careful about rhyming. But whether by accident or design, these problematic rhymes set this section of the poem formally apart from the rest. Now, it seems inherently improbable to me that Orrery would have made a favourable reference to Henry's line during most of the 1650s, while he was working closely with Cromwellians and Republicans. But late 1659, or still more so early 1660, is different. Then saying flattering things about the royal line, um, even if they didn't, strictly speaking, apply to Charles II, who wasn't a direct descendant of Henry VIII, would suddenly have been very much to Roger Boyle's advantage. I mentioned earlier that Orrery's poetry is typically social and occasional, written for a particular person and in response to a particular occasion. It's basically a form of lobbying. Generically, To the Lord Herbert superficially resembles other poems by Orrery in being a poem on a book addressed to another writer. His poems to Cowley, Phillips and Edward Howard, which I mentioned earlier, are the obvious analogies. But in certain key respects, To the Lord Herbert is really quite different from the poems to Cowley, Phillips and Howard. 
unlike those three writers who were all still actively writing at the time Orrery addressed his poems to them, Herbert was not. He died in 1648, the year before The Life and Reign was published. And while it's possible that Orrery might not have known this, he couldn't have failed to notice, had he as much as flicked through the pages of The Life and Reign, that it is actually a complete and finished work. So his traditional gambit of urging another writer to complete an unfinished project would not have applied in this case. So, is to the Lord Herbert an anomaly in Orrery's career as a poet, perhaps dating from a time before his poetic habits were fully established? Or is it possible that it is a social and occasional poem, but in a rather different way from Orrery's poems to living writers? You're probably way ahead of me here, but the question I'm asking is, put it another way, if to the, Herbert is ad- if to the Lord Herbert is addressed <coughs> to anyone in particular, who is that addressee likely to be? One obvious candidate might seem to be Edward Rainbow, given his role in approving Orrery's poem, but I find it hard to see why Orrery would have wanted to lobby Rainbow or what he would have hoped to gain by doing so. But there was one person, of course, whom Orrery had an obvious interest in lobbying in 1660, namely Charles II. So my tentative theory about this poem is that it was written for presentation to Charles II, perhaps inscribed in a copy of Herbert's Life and Reign around the time of the Restoration. Um, As I've already hinted, I think this makes sense of the otherwise rather puzzling and obtrusive Defender of the Faith faith reference. And I wonder whether it may also make sense of Orrery's rather clumsy references to Henry's sexual history. Um, Orrery is widely agreed not to have been at his best when trying to be funny. Um, Even his otherwise rather generous biographer Kathleen Lynch could find little to praise in his comic dramas. Um, And I think it is possible that his ham-fisted references to Henry VIII's chastity could have been an attempt to amuse a new king whose lack of chastity was already well known in elite circles. On this reading, Rainbow's role in approving the poem might have been to vet it for presentation to Charles Charles II. Um, This could have been a theological vetting, all the more plausible since Orrery and Rainbow seem to have been quite closely aligned theologically, and also given that Rainbow was appointed as one of Charles II's chaplains in 1660. Alternatively, or perhaps additionally, Rainbow might have been asked for his views on Orrery's attempts at humour. Rainbow's first biographer, Jonathan Banks, claims that when Rainbow was an undergraduate at Cambridge, he'd gained a reputation as a master of a prompt and facetious wit. Or he might simply have been asked to assess Brockle's poetry as poetry. According to Banks, Rainbow had himself written poetry as a young man, some of which is um, reproduced in Banks' biography. These three options um, as to what Rainbow's approval might have involved don't exist the possibilities, um, but the notion of a poem being approved of remains a rather curious thing. I've got a few more ideas about that, but they're speculative, and I want to get back to Orrery. So in this... um, lengthy conclusion to my paper, I'd like to move from the particular to the general and consider what the poem to Lord Herbert, along with Orrery's other poems from this period, um, which I've recapped on this slide, tell us about what sort of poet he was 
at least in the early part of his career in the 1650s and 60s. Orrery's protégé, Catherine Phillips, described herself as having an incorrigible inclination to that folly of rhyming. I don't think Orrery was like that. Mm -hmm. Um, He doesn't seem to have written poems um, out of the sheer love of writing. Instead, his poems, I think, can be more accurately described as strategic or even functional. Each of these poems of the 1650s and 60s seems to have been written to achieve a particular objective, whether this was to urge another writer to finish their work, to promote a protégé, to burnish Orrery's own literary credentials, or, if I'm right about the original context for To the Lord Herbert, to amuse and impress the king. I mentioned earlier that Orrery's favourite poetic subjects included literary patronage, politics and religion. To this I'd also add history and friendship. History, of course, is self-evident in To the Lord Herbert. Um, Friendship, a well-known theme in Orrery's early drama, is also prominent in his poems to Cowley and Phillips. Ireland, however, is conspicuously absent from Orrery's poems of the 1650s and 60s. There's no reference to Ireland, for instance, in Orrery's poem to Catherine Phillips, even though it was written while she was resident in Dublin. There's also no reference to Ireland in Orrery's poem to the Lord Herbert, an absence I find all the more striking, given that Herbert himself draws attention to Henry's role as the first English king of Ireland, um, immediately after his reference to Henry as the first defender of the faith. All of what I've just been saying about Orrery's poetry applies, as I've stressed, to the 1650s and 60s. In the 1670s, Orrery's last decade, something's changed. His major poems in this decade were the manuscript poem, A Vision, which is internally dated to 1675, and the posthumous poems on most of the festivals of the church, which he was apparently working on when he died. There's much in these two works that's familiar from Orrery's earlier poetry, but some things are different. So, for instance, these 1670s poems are still occasional and strategic, but sometimes in new ways. I'll come back to this point in a moment. Some of Orrery's familiar subjects are still there, such as religion, politics and history, but there's little about friendship and there's little overtly about literature or patronage. But the most obvious difference between Orrery's 1670s poetry and his earlier work is what I've described here simply as its greater substance. And I mean by this in the first instance that the 1670s poetry is quite simply longer than his earlier poetic works. A vision is 258 lines long, while poems on most of the festivals of the church runs to 80 pages and comprises 29 poems. Both works are really lengthy literary undertakings. They're also substantial in the sense of being more intellectually and politically weighty than Orrery's earlier poems. A Vision, for instance, is a very topical intervention in two of the great um, English political controversies of the 1670s, Charles II's apparently inexorable move towards absolutism and the persistent rumours that he was about to convert to Catholicism. In literary terms, a vision is also by far the most ambitious of Orrery's poems. Um, This is apparent, for instance, from its innovative blending of genres. 
The poem is a dream vision of sorts, but it, tra- it differs from the traditional dream vision in that the, nar- the narrator of the poem himself doesn't actually fall asleep. Um, instead, he witnesses a dream experienced by the sleeping Charles II. Um, originally, of course, a medieval genre, the dream vision had declined in popularity in the 17th century, but was still practiced from time to time. It had been, for instance, used by Kiley in 1661 for a polemic against Cromwell, um, and I suspect that Orrery's use of the genre was inspired by Cowley. Um, especially since Cowley's text also problematizes the distinction between vision and dream. But Orrery's A Vision is also a ghost poem um, in which the spirit of the beheaded Charles I comes back, first to talk the sleeping Charles II out of succumbing to the blandishments of Louis XIV and absolutist Catholicism, and secondly to advise the narrator, um, a parliament man, on how to manage relations with the king better. Ghost poems, um, in which a famous figure from the past returned to advise their present-day successors of the errors of their ways, were, of course, popular in the Restoration. Contemporary and near-contemporary examples include the ghosts of Edmund Spencer, Julius Caesar, and the late King of Poland, all of whom came back to life in poems of the 1670s and 80s. Um, Spencer in a poem by John Oldham, for instance. Orrery's A Vision, um, in fact, predates the height of the Restoration fashion for ghost poems. Um, And I suspect that his use of the ghost trope was specifically influenced by Marvell's last instructions to a painter. Um, In one of the last sections of the last instructions, Marvell um, imagines the ghost of Charles I coming back to warn his son against persisting with his political misdeeds. Um, And just like Orrery, Marvell doesn't shrink from reminding the younger Charles about what happened to his father. You may be able to make out the reference to the purple thread around the late king's neck. All in all, a vision is a very knowing and sophisticated piece of work, um, though there is no evidence that it had any effect whatsoever on Charles II, um, to whom it's said to have been presented. Orrery's final poetic work poems on most of the festivals of the church is also a combination of the familiar and the unfamiliar. There is a lot in it, for instance, about burial and tomb building practices, albeit with references to the reference to the apostles rather than Henry VIII with the Boyle family. Um, and the entire premise of the collection, that of writing poems on church festivals, is another version of occasionality. Uh, this collection has sometimes been dismissed as conventional, Um, but this assessment, in my view, fails to take account of the very particular resonance that some of Orrery's arguments would have had in Ireland. So, for instance, his numerous jibes against the Catholic Church would, needless to say, have been particularly loaded with significance in the Irish context, as would his use of early Christian history to provide intellectual support for a distinctively Anglican reading of the major church festivals. I mentioned earlier that Ireland is conspicuously absent from Orrery's poetry of the 1650s and 60s. This perhaps may make sense if we think of this poetry, as I've suggested, as a form of lobbying. In the 1650s and 60s, he had other ways of arguing his case about Ireland rather than by writing poems. 
But by the 1670s, when he'd lost his political offices, many of those other ways were no longer open to him. In any case, even when Ireland isn't explicitly mentioned in a poem, it can be relevant to it. John Kerrigan, for instance, argues that although Ireland is nowhere mentioned in A Vision, the poem was generated by Irish circumstances. Kerrigan links the poem specifically to Orrery's anxieties about the presence of Catholic troops in Ireland in the 1670s, but the argument can be applied more broadly. Stuart absolutism and philo-Catholicism, worrying enough in England, would have been immensely threatening to the Boyle family interest in Ireland. But when we get to poems on most of the festivals of the church, there's no need to infer an Irish context. The collection is explicitly written for and within Ireland. As we can see from page one, where Orrery dedicates his poetry to my mother, the Church of Christ in Ireland, um, as well as um, in this later reference to St. Patrick, which is in slightly small letters, but um, it, he refers there to Patrick as the patron saint of this isle. Um, and there's another um, slightly, more, slightly more coded reference to Ireland in the postscript to poems, um, which you probably can't make out, but um, the reader is told there that if Ori had lived longer, he'd meant to write poems on the 29th of May, the 23rd of October and the 5th of November. Um, the middle reference, of course, is to the outbreak of the 1641 rebellion, arguably the most momentous event in Ori's political life. It's become a commonplace of Ori scholarship, at least when viewed from an Irish perspective, to say that the apparent inconsistencies in his political career all make sense if viewed as a sustained and agile campaign to promote the interests of his own family and co-religionists. It's not so much that he changed as that the circumstances around him did. As I've been suggesting in this paper, I think a similar case can be made for his poetry. In fact, one might almost say that in Orrery's last few years, poetry and politics converged as poetry, or at least writing, became almost the only way for him to pursue politics. Poetry, as it were, became the pursuit of politics by other means. As a lengthy, printed collection, overtly addressed to a public readership in Ireland, poems on most of the festivals of the church look superficially very unlike the rest of Orrery's poetry, which is typically niche and is often addressed to named individuals. But as we've seen, there's much in the collection that speaks to Orrery's long-standing interests and priorities, not least his use of history as a means of furthering the interests of his family and community. In this paper, I've stressed the strategic qualities of Orrery's poetry. Another way of putting this would be to say that his poetry sets out to be persuasive. Admittedly, Orrery's poetic attempts at persuasion hadn't had a very high success rate. Of the three writers he'd urged to finish their work, Cowley, Phillips and Howard, only one, Phillips, actually did so. And his longest poem of vision, as I mentioned earlier, seems to have had little, if any, effect on King Charles. But Orrery, as his past career had amply shown, had always been willing to adjust his short-term methods in pursuit of his long-term goals. Having persuade, failed to persuade the king with a vision, in poems on most of the festivals of the church, he was trying something else. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. For more information on the conference, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.